<laughs> so when does service actually start? <laughs> so I love that video because in the once or 20 times that I watched it this week, like pretty much every time I found something new that was really, really funny. And it's funny because they're poking fun at some of the things that people actually take pride for in their spiritual walk, right? And it shows how some people are just living out their faith to look good and try to earn their way to heaven. But this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that has been going on for thousands of years, and it's something that Jesus had to deal with back in his day. And he approaches this topic on the Sermon in the Mount. And we're in the middle of a sermon series right now called Life in the Kingdom, which examines Jesus' teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, telling us how we can live as citizens of his kingdom. So I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. As today we're going to be looking at the, this portion of Jesus' sermon where he responds to how many of the religious leaders were doing all this, these religious acts to look good but they really had no interest in honoring God through these activities. Before we dive into that, though, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us your word and that we don't have to stumble in the dark figuring out how we can follow you and how we can do the things that honor you. Lord, as we um, read and study the scriptures this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts so that we can learn how we can grow as your followers and live more closely to the citizens of your kingdom, how they're supposed to act. Amen. Jesus opens out this passage in verse 1 with a summary statement. And like a good intro to a persuasive speech, this first verse sets the stage for the message and is really his thesis statement. And here's the main point of this whole passage that Jesus is getting at right now. He says, All righteous acts done for the purpose of honoring yourself or not honoring to God. Uh, I forgot to read the passage. Sorry. Let's, Let's do that first. All right. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, they will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So this we see is the, really the thesis statement that Jesus is, is making for the rest of the passage, saying that if you do religious activities or practice your righteousness but only do it to honor yourself, that doesn't honor me. And then he goes on in the rest of the passage. He says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So after Jesus makes that thesis statement that all righteous acts done for the purpose of honoring yourself are not honoring to God, he goes into three examples to support that thesis. And there's a pattern to each one of these examples. And the pattern goes like this. And when you insert righteous act here, do not be like the hypocrites, for they do this righteous act to bring glory to themselves or to be seen by others. They have received their full reward. When you do this act, do it in private. Then the Father will reward you. We're going to take a couple minutes, and we're going to kind of break down this pattern so we can understand the main points of what Jesus is getting at in this passage. He starts off talking about hypocrites, right? Hypocrite is the Greek word for actor. They were a stage actor, and they were well-known for putting on those masks, like you see in the, like the Phantom in the Opera and those kind of like masks. And they would put on different masks throughout the stage to show that I'm not at being myself. I'm taking on the character of, well, the character. And in the New Testament, this term hypocrite always had a negative connotation because it was referring to somebody that was hiding who they really were inside, and they were putting on a show trying to fool people into thinking that they were something they're not. And most of the time, and in this case, it's referring to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would puff themselves up in the public eye to make themselves look spiritually superior. And for the most part, their facade worked um, because a lot of the people held them in high regard and considered them to have very good and solid spiritual lives. But Jesus saw right through their act. And he knew that they were just practicing a shallow religion and that they were far more concerned with looking righteous than actually being righteous. Now, some people in today's culture would argue that this passage is arguing that we should try to live our faith in private and that we should not let other people know that we're Christians and we should just keep it to ourselves. But Jesus is not really talking about the audience of our Christian faith. He's talking about the condition of our heart and about our motives. And that's seen by the phrase, to be seen by them, in this pattern. When Jesus uses this phrase, he's talking that the righteous acts that these hypocrites were doing were for the purpose of making themselves look good so that other people would look at them and to be seen by them. And in fact, we see earlier on the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So in other words, Jesus is telling us to live our lives and do good things in front of other people that point to God. But the point is we should make these, do these things to make God look good, 
not to make ourselves look good. But the hypocrites were not doing that. They were trying to make themselves look good. And Jesus is saying that people looking at them and holding them esteem, that, that's all you're going to get. That's your reward. And the passage, though, is clear. Although people may swoon over you, God is not impressed with these shallow spiritual acts. And then Jesus, in this pattern, says, but when you do this, so when you, he's drawing a distinction between the religious hypocrites and his followers. He is calling his followers to live to a different standard. His followers are not called to a standard of self-righteousness. We're called to a standard of God's righteousness. And those who live out God's righteousness receive the Father's reward. And one of the cool things about the wording of this passage is the term Father here. Father is a relational term. And it, in this passage, is talking, referring to like a loving father giving blessings to a cherished son or daughter. And we see that in contrast to the way the Pharisees are doing, because the Pharisees were trying to honor God through self-righteousness apart from a relationship with God. Right? They were just trying to like get God's attention and, or get other people's attention and get rewards. But Jesus is saying, unless you have that relational father and you're doing it out of love for the father, you're not going to get a reward from the father. So then after, um, we, now that we talked about the pattern, let's get into the actual examples that Jesus is talking about in this passage. He starts off in verses 2 through 4 by talking about giving to the needy. Now, giving to the needy was not something that was required of the Jewish people, right? And it's different than a tithe or an offering, right? A tithe or an offering was something that the law required, which was 10% of all your income and all your crops. You were supposed to give that to the temple and to the Levites to support them so that they could watch over the spiritual needs of the people. That was something that was required by the law for them to give. Now, giving to the needy went over and above that. It was optional. It was something you could choose to do. And the purpose of it was to give financial aid to those who were unable to take care of themselves. And we see from both this passage and from Matthew 23, 23, that the Pharisees would do both of these things. They would do their... Um, tithe, and they would give what was required of them, and then they would go over and above that and give things to the needy, but their motives were way off. As we see from Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So you see here that when the Pharisees were to do these things, they weren't doing them because they wanted to be merciful to the poor people or to care about them. They were just doing it to make themselves look good. And in fact, oftentimes the Pharisees, they looked down on the people who didn't have much because in their mind, the reason that those people had less was because they weren't getting, they weren't being blessed by God because they weren't following God the way that they were. 
And so they would actually look down on these people and they were um, kind of mean to them. And I think that's shown by, um, back to Matthew 6, when it talks about the hypocrites, they would announce their giving with trumpets. Now, I, I don't know if they were like literally hiring a trumpet quartet to like get everyone's attention as they march down and award people money. But they were definitely drawing attention to themselves and making a spectacle of their generosity. And the thing that strikes me about that is, can you imagine like how embarrassing that would have been for the person receiving the money? Like, look at me, I'm awesome. I'm giving to this nobody. They stink and they can't make money and they're not being blessed by God, but I am giving them money so that they can eat because they're incapable of taking care of themselves. Like, that's just not, like, that's humiliating to the people that, that's receiving it. And that's not really honoring to God at all, but you can see that they don't, they don't actually care about those people. They're just doing it to make themselves look good. And Jesus was not happy with that. Now, we might think like, oh, that, that's a thing of the past, but the truth is a lot of businesses do that today, right? They give money to charity for the sole purpose of making their business look good, and it, it can actually be um, something that helps promote your business. I read this article um, by a guy named Mark Cross where he, he's talking about when you give money to charity, do it with a purpose and have a goal in mind so that you're actually getting something in return. Listen to what he says. He says, I've run into a, a few people lately who have retail stores and are giving money to charity. That's good for you, but bad for business. If you're running a lean, mean store with low profits, why are you giving money away instead of putting it back into your store, into your pocket? Don't get me wrong. I'm a big believer in the importance of charity, of giving back, of helping those less fortunate. But giving is bad for business unless you've set goals for why and how you're giving and what you expect to receive from those endeavors. As the saying goes, nothing in life is free. Most philanthropic organizations organize that giving today is often a business decision, and there's quite often a quid pro quo associated with it. So you can see here that he's saying, like, it's pointless for your business to give money unless your business is going to get something back. So that's not really, like, charitable giving, right? That's not, that's not giving for the sake of helping people. That's giving for the sake of making yourself and your business look good. And that's really what the Pharisees were doing here. But Jesus tells his followers to be different. And he uses exaggerated language in the verse when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. To show that giving to the needy should be about sharing God's concern for the downtrodden and for the hurting. Jesus wants his followers to help those people in a way that helps them, right? Not embarrasses them or uses them to get, you know, personal attention. And I think when we really give out of the overflow of generosity in our heart, after we realize what God has done for us, we don't care who knows about it because we're not doing it to bring glory to ourselves. And we don't care if we receive recognition. Jesus then moves on to his second example of prayer. And he talks about not going out into the temple and standing up on a high corner and, and praying like in front of everyone or like standing on the street corner so that people will see your awesome prayers, which I find kind of silly anyway, right? Because the whole point of prayer is like talking to God and recognizing who he is and asking for him for things because we know that 
we need him, right? And it's, it's true prayer gives glory to God. But in a sense, when people were standing up on the corners and doing this, they were using God as a tool to rob him of glory so that they could have the glory and look good instead of making God look glory. And then Jesus goes on in verses 7 and 8 to refer to pagans babbling on and on. And the reason that Jesus is referring to this is that most pagans believed that there were many gods and that these gods were fallible, right? And so in order to get the attention of these gods, they had to pray often and very loud and repeatedly in order to get their attention because they believed that these gods could only listen to a limited number of people at a time and they would only listen for a limited amount of time. So they would pray often to greater the odds of these gods hearing them, later the odds, greater the odds of the gods hearing them. And they babbled on and on, and they would repeat the same words because they believed that if they said the right magic words, that that would get the gods' attention. Um, so it, when I think about that, I think about, you know, that one kid in school, you know, that whenever the teacher, any question the kids like hand is up before the teacher's even done, you know, and they're not really content just like raising their hand, you know, they have to like wave around and eventually like when the teacher doesn't call them on, they like get even more animated, you know, and they, they start going like crazy, like getting the, the teacher to get their attention, you know, kind of like how Luke usually is during the children's <laughs> message. <laughs> well, I got news for you. That's not the only time he does that, right? Um, and it, we're, we're trying really hard to teach him manners. Like, we're trying to teach him that when he wants to say something and people are talking, he needs to say, excuse me. But he's found a way to make that, you know, his new thing. Like, Chris and I will be talking about something, and Luke will be like, excuse me, excuse me, I got something to say. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, please, I got something to say. And we'll be like, Luke, we hear you, buddy. Just let us finish our sentence, and then we'll come to you. Okay, that's good. Excuse me, I got something to say. You know, and some of the, the epitome of this is when we go to McDonald's because Luke absolutely loves getting Happy Meals. And so, like, as soon as we pull into, you know, the McDonald's property, he'll start saying, like, I want a Happy Meal. 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 Okay, Luke, we hear you. You want a Happy Meal. Yeah, I want a Happy Meal. I want a Happy Meal. And then as soon as we pull up to the drive through thing and roll down the window, Luke will scream, I want a Happy Meal. And then he'll, like, you know, say what he wants. And, like, I've learned that I have to order his Happy Meal first or he will not let me order food for the rest of us. But that, that's essentially how the, these people were praying and how the Pharisees were praying. Like, they had to make sure that their request was heard. And Jesus is telling the disciples, we don't need to pray that way because God hears our prayers the first time. He knows what we're going to pray before we even say it. And he loves us, and he wants to take care of us. Therefore, we don't have to be obnoxious or annoying or, or loud when we pray to God. We can just ask him once, be confident that he's heard us, and trust that he's going to take care of us. Jesus then gives a model for prayer. And we know this as the Lord's Prayer. And we did a sermon series in going into depth on the Lord's Prayer in 2013. So I'm not really going to go into all that much detail about the Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to draw out a few points. Uh, but if you're interested in more, you can check out our website, freedomschurch.org, uh, where that, those sermons are posted. Uh, 
Um, but then Jesus starts off this model, the Lord's Prayer, by talking about God and his purposes uh, in verses 9 and 10. Um, and I think this is to align the focus, that when we pray, we're supposed to pray to God and not just pray about ourselves or make ourselves look good. And we're supposed to, I like how Jesus refers to God with the title of Father, because again, it shows that relational connection, that we see God as, as a loving Father who cares about us and wants to take care of us. Um, and this has really been a huge part of how Jesus has referring to God through the Sermon on the Mount as this God who loves us and cares about us. And then the rest of the prayer goes through three simple requests that we're supposed to bring to God. Food, forgiveness, and the ability to rest temptation. And I see this really as three foundational things that we need in our walk with God, right? We need to recognize that he takes care of us and that he gives us our need. So we're giving thanks for that. Secondly, that we want to live in a way where we're not hindered by our past, that we can continue to serve God, and then guidance so we can live in the rhythm of how God wants us to walk as his children. And the thing that we notice about this prayer is that, it qu- that it's quick and gets to the point. And our prayers are not about manipulating God with the right words or um, trying to annoy God into giving us what we need. We're simply coming before our Father and telling him what's on our hearts and trusting that he's going to take care of us. He then goes on in verses 14 and 15 to say this phrase that kind of confused me the first time I read it. It says, If you forgive your other people when they sit against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive you. I mean, when I first read this, it was kind of confused because it almost implies that in order for us to receive forgiveness of our sins, we have to forgive others first, right? But after studying it in the context of Jesus talking about acts of righteousness versus a genuine love for God, I think Jesus is drawing a connection between our spiritual acts and our, and our faith with God and our relationship with others, Because if you think about it, even the Pharisees, their righteous acts spilled out into their relationship with God. But it was a very shallow relationship, not spilled out in a relationship with others in a very shallow way, right? The relationship was really, I'm going to do really impressive spiritual things and you're going to, you know, honor me. And that's kind of a shallow relationship, you know, like... A lot of us really look up to, like, sports players like Aaron Rodgers. We say he's, like, the greatest quarterback ever or whatever, right? And people, like, you honor him, but you don't really have a strong relationship with him. Jesus in this passage is calling us to a deeper relationship with the world around us, and that's one of forgiveness. And that is, that is a much deeper relationship. And it, that's how Jesus wants us to act. And when we do forgive others in those, those moments, we're starting to experience and understand the forgiveness that God offers to us. So that's, that's kind of that statement. And then Jesus goes on after making that statement to talk about his third and final example of fasting. And I think fasting is kind of weird for us in our modern-day culture um, because it's not something that a lot of people practice on a regular basis. And the truth is, even in the Old Testament, it was somewhat rare because 
in the Old Testament, it's really only talked about um, in connection with the Day of Atonement. It's a couple others, but the main thing is the Day of Atonement. So most people would just fast one day a year. And the purpose of this was to not eat food, to think about God in, in, um, as opposed to thinking about your own needs. And with the Day of Atonement, it was connection, connected to the um, confession of sins and thinking about how your sin hurts you. And instead, any time you had a hunger pain, you were supposed to think about God and how he takes care of you. But the Pharisees took this concept of fasting and made it so much more. In fact, the Pharisees would fast twice a week. And they would not just fast, but they would make it obvious that they were fasting, right? Um, They would uh, make their faces look grimy, and they would walk around and act all weak. So people would be like, oh, they're fasting. Look at how spiritual they are, right? But again, their focus was not on God. They weren't using this to turn their attentions toward God. They were using that to turn their attentions back to themselves, right? And this idea that they were supposed to focus on their sin during these times and this act was actually driving them to more sin of, of pride. Jesus, again, instructs his followers to be different. He instructs them to continue their normal grooming habits and not go around and brag about their fasting. But instead, they're supposed to actually, you know, think about God and, and confess their sins and, and make this about their relationship with God. So now that we've looked at Jesus' teaching in this passage and the three examples that he's given, I want to talk about how we can apply these things that we've learned to our lives 2,000 years later. And one of the things that I, I think kind of sticks out to me as I think about this passage is it, it seems like the Pharisees are really striving. They're chasing after this concept of righteousness, right? They're pursuing righteousness because it's something that they don't have. Um, they're like a person, you know, that you're talking to that, that's trying to talk knowledgeably about a subject that they're not really all that knowledgeable about. They might be able to fool a couple people that don't know anything, but people that really understand that topic well can see right through it. For example, check out my prediction for today's game. Today's game between the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers will be a close game. I think Aaron Rodgers will have at least five run batted, runs batted in, and he will get home at least twice. Seattle star player Marshawn Lynch will go into monster mode, and he will check a few players, earning himself a little bit of time in the penalty box. Although Green Bay's fans, the Mermen, will be in attendance, the game is in Seattle, where they're loud fans. The Legion of Boom will make life hard on the Packers' cheese-style offense. And behind that suffocating defense and the fact that Seattle is the loud home field advantage of 12 men on the field, I see Seattle coming on top of a close mass of 95 to 101. You laugh because you know how ridiculous those things are, right? But imagine I'm talking to somebody from Timbuktu who has never heard or seen a game of American football. He might think, wow, that guy really knows what he's talking about, right? He's an expert on football and... That's evidenced by all those detailed things that he says about it. But like you guys know, because you've lived around football probably your entire life, and you spend a lot of time on Sunday watching football every week, you know that I'm speaking basically gibberish, right? And I think that was kind of happening 
with the Pharisees. They were, they were talking all these things about righteousness, but they didn't really know what they were talking about. They were chasing after that, but they didn't have it. They were like that one dinosaur from Meet the Robinsons who had a really big head and little arms that was clawing at the kid in the corner but couldn't get to him. Like, that's kind of how I see the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They were trying to get at this thing that they, they didn't know about. They couldn't have it. And as the people of Israel saw them doing these acts of righteousness, they would praise the Pharisees. And the Pharisees felt good about that, and they felt validated. And they got their source of identity from what the other people would say about them, right? And I know I can relate to that a lot, because as a pastor, I spend, you know, a lot of time on, on stage on Sundays, you know? And sometimes it can be hard not to see myself as a performer, you know, that I say really good things or I crack a good joke or I, you know, play a nice riff on the guitar and you guys think I'm a good musician. And I think that's even especially true, like, when I'm preaching. And part of the reason of that is because, like, I feel like every time I preach, I spend a lot of time in God's Word and thinking about the gospel and just meditating on these things. And I feel like every time I do that, God gives me, like, cool insights that make me just stand in amazement of who God is and what he's done for us. And, and sometimes, like, when these insights come and I'm, like, you know, adding them to my sermon, it's hard not to be like, oh, people are going to think this is a great point and they're going to love this story or whatever and they're going to think I'm brilliant. You know, and that, that sometimes is a temptation, right? And it, it's in those moments that I need to realize that while I appreciate, you know, the encouragement that you guys give me sometimes at the end of the sermon, that God doesn't want that to be my goal, and my main source of validation doesn't come from you. It comes from God. And who he, who he says I am as one of his children. As a follower of Christ, my validation and my identity comes from the Father. And the fact that I have been adopted into his family. And who I am is dictated by his love for me. And who he says I am. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. He says, But now a righteousness apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In this passage, we see that righteousness is something that's given to us. And if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, righteousness is not something that we're clawing at, trying to get, or trying to be. It's something that we already are. Because of what Christ Jesus has done, we have that righteousness. And when I think about that concept of pursuing righteousness versus already having righteousness... I think about this illustration involving my sister. My sister uh, just recently got accepted to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, um, the, their medical school. Um, she already has her bachelor's, um, and she's now going to become a doctor. And I'm thinking about how she's doing a lot of doctorly activities, right? Like studying medicine, and like she's in a hospital, like doing residency and stuff, but she is striving to be a doctor. Right? 
Now, compare that to the doctor that we take our children to, right? When that doctor studies medicine and, you know, prescribes things and hangs out in a hospital, she's not doing that because she's pursuing being a doctor. She's doing those things because it's her identity as a doctor, right? And that's how we live out our righteous acts. We don't do spiritual disciplines, like reading our Bible or praying or giving to the needy or talking to other people about the gospel. We don't do these things because we're trying to like earn God's favor or please him or earn our salvation. Those things come out in overflow of who we are in Christ Jesus. And so our motivation is to grow in our relationship with him. And because we believe that by doing those things, it's going to build our relationship with God. And it's going to build our relationship with other children in God's family. And it's going to be a shining light to those who have not yet been adopted by God. And with the knowledge that righteousness is already something that's true of us, we can continue to pursue a relationship with God with right motives, doing spiritual disciplines to honor him as we continue to live out our life in the kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, in that what we could never accomplish through righteous acts or trying to do things, Lord, you did for us on the cross. Lord, you paid the penalty for our sin and then you rose again from the dead to give us new life, to give us a new identity in Christ so that we don't have to do all these spiritual acts to feel good about ourselves or to make other people think that we're cool or super spiritual because you already think about us as your children. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to find our validation and identity in what you think of us and that we would move forward living our lives for you to bring glory to you and to help others to see the goodness of who you are. Amen.